Welcome to Real Herbalism Radio, show 264, recorded at Big Dog Studios in Eugene, Oregon. The show is made possible by... The Real Herb Market. Do you make herbal products for sale? At The Real Herb Market, we connect herbal makers like you with people who appreciate the power of natural herbal care. Become a seller at The Real Herb Market today. Visit them at therealherbmarket.com. The Herbal Nerd Society. Influence the conversation to connect with the plants and experts you really want to learn from. That's what you'll get from the Herbal Nerd Society. Learn more at herbalnerdsociety.com. Plants either languish or thrive when faced with serious adversity. Those that thrive follow the path of the most powerful medicine. So too it is with people. Today we're talking with KP Kalsa, Ayurvedic doctor and state licensed nutritionist, about facing challenge and finding your own path into powerful medicine. Now here are your hosts. I'm Candace Hunter. I'm Patrick Hunter. And, and welcome, welcome to, to Real Herbalism, Herbalism Radio. Radio. Welcome, KP. I'm so thankful to have you here with us today. Oh, it's always my pleasure. Nice to be with you. I have taken a few of your classes. I've seen you lecture in person. I've read your book. I have to say I really love your approach to herbal medicine and, you know, medicine and health in general. It's really nice to hear. Thanks so much. One of the things that I've read about in your bio um, was that you started life here in Eugene, but you you had a um, serious childhood illness of some sort that kind of set you on the path toward herbalism. And one of the things that's intrigued me about that was that a lot of I've I've known many people who've suffered from illnesses, children, you know, in childhood as well as adults, and oftentimes I find many of them get caught into the idea that the only path for them is Western medicine and the doctors and hospitals. And then they keep doing that and they try the therapies and then the therapies do or don't work. And oftentimes I find many people that I've known have uh, suffered from the therapies. I mean, sometimes it helps, sometimes it mitigates, but you know, I've seen some of the friends and, and family members that I've known have actually, I think, from my personal perspective, it looks like they're being made somewhat worse by the medical treatments that they're going through. And they still keep doing it, which I realize is kind of the definition of insanity. How how did you not get caught in that? You know, let me clarify a little bit. My uh, path on, uh, my my path into this whole area was there was no great plan. And in fact, yes, I had a, uh, a disease that event that motivated me eventually to use natural medicine, but uh, I didn't really start from that place. So let me go back for a moment and just talk about that. So I came from a medical family and I was uh, living a typical American uh, life, living on, you know, bologna sandwiches and processed food and, uh, you know, taking the drugs that were uh, you know, that were recommended by medical doctors at the time. When I was about 10 years old, I began to have uh, chronic back pain. And when it was investigated, it went to a series of orthopedic doctors. Most of them couldn't figure out what was going on. Finally, one doctor who was from Europe originally recognized the condition, uh, gave it a name, a European name, and all the orthopedic physicians said that it had uh, no cure and just don't get addicted to morphine too young because you're going to need a lot later. This was a disease that inevitably kills people by age 40. Well, at age 10, that doesn't really sink in uh, that that much. And so I continued to have increasing pain until I was in high school. The pain was uh, every waking minute and again, no treatment. Then 
uh, as a uh, teenager, an older teenager, I began to get interested in natural medicine and natural living in general, studies of consciousness, nutrition, diet. Those are things that were very new at the time. It was a hippie time. A lot of Eastern ideas and alternative ways of living were showing up. And I was part of that subculture. And I was interested in the possibility of just using those things uh, in my life. So I began to experiment with things. Now, remember, in those days, a health food store was the size of your closet. And on one side, there was a bag of wheat germ. On the other side, there was a bottle of alfalfa pills. And that was about it. So exotic things like tofu uh, showed up, you know, amazing. And uh, when I first bought tofu, you go to the health food store, there would be a big barrel of water with a bunch of tofu blocks stacked in it. You'd reach it with your bare arm, <laughs> grab a block, scoop out some of the water in a bag, and take that bag of water with your tofu block home with you. So wow. things were not very advanced by that time. But I began experimenting with those ideas. Then uh, just in, in terms of this milieu, I began uh, taking a yoga class. And after a few classes, we did one exercise that left me out of pain for about 15 minutes. Now, I'd been in pain that time for about eight years with it getting worse and worse all the time. And I just gutted through it. I did all kinds of active things, backpacking and numerous things, and it just hurt. And I just dealt with it. The, uh, then I had that experience, and I was already dabbling in these alternative ideas, and I figured that there was one thing that would keep me pain-free for 15 minutes. There might be other things. So on that journey, and it was really initially more an interest in the process than it was thinking that it would heal me, because, of course, I'd been told by an army of doctors uh, eight years late, earlier that there was no cure for this. So I just found it fascinating and began to... Uh, research and participate. In retrospect, I think I was a wounded healer, and I did have subconsciously the desire to be healed with these things, uh, although I was not saying it to myself uh, at the time. And the more I began to participate in eating a cleaner diet and doing specific exercises and things like that, the better I felt until eventually just doing those things uh, solved the problem altogether. So within a few years, I was pain-free. The condition was completely uh, reversed. There's no evidence of that condition in my body uh, now. And I'm well past 40 with no problems. You can't see it with medical imaging. I have no symptoms, but the, I didn't originally target it. I mean, things that it would take us nine months to do then, we can do in nine days now because we have so much more uh, access to these tools. So I benefited from it, but also it was something that I could see myself being involved in uh, for a lifetime just because it was so potent. There was no obvious career path for any of these right. things in those days. This was 50 years ago, 5-0. There were no schools. There were no books. Uh, I was lucky enough to meet some early mentors and began learning from them, and the whole thing got rolling. Wow. That's, yeah, that, to me, honestly, that's incredible. I mean, it's just. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I have in my family that uh, those illustrations that Candace had mentioned earlier with I have, a, I have a brother that has epilepsy and, you know, going through that whole childhood, there was this army of doctors and it was always going to be surgery and all these other things. And, you know, we never even uh, thought there was another avenue for for him. And knowing what I know now, I wish that, you know, I could go back and, and pull him aside and let's figure this out in another way. Um, but it's amazing that you were able to find those little things and you happen to be in, in this area of the country, which was seeming to be the, the forefront of, of, of 
this movement at the time anyway uh, that you were able to to do that i i think you know yoga i was going to ask you is like i do yoga once a week but uh, maybe i should be doing it you know every day <laughs> i mean to for the dramatic effect that it had on you um that's amazing uh i'm just stunned by the ability that you were able to you know cure yourself with all those experts saying that no you'll not cure yourself Right. Yeah. Well, it in many ways, it was an advantage to uh, be told that there was no cure for any of this because I then I didn't undergo any of those things. I didn't take drugs or surgery at the time for that particular condition. I'm not sure how it's treated now. I haven't really investigated. It was a pretty obscure diagnosis at the time. Uh, so I didn't uh, I wasn't put in a position of having to make that choice. There were just nothing to do. And other alternative things started to work. So why not? Yeah. You know, I think the psychology of it is one of the challenges that so many people run into that, you know, becoming the victim, essentially. I mean, they look to the doctors to save them. At least that's what it seems from the people in my life that have really had to deal with. Um, some of them have been, you know, chronic pain or various other issues that they've had to deal with. And I think it's it takes a certain characteristic to be able to say, well, this is the way it is, but I'm curious about this natural healing. Even if it doesn't do anything for me personally, you know what I mean? Sure. Well, I came from a medical family, and so those ideas were completely preposterous from their perspective. The idea that any of this would ever make any difference or diet had any role in anything or, you know, that the, my condition, much less other people's, were curable with other other means. But again, this was a, an environment where the subculture was very active. And as I became an older teenager, I was able to interact with people who thought very differently and uh, were experimenting with every kind of lifestyle, diet, exercise, everything that you could imagine. And herbs started to uh, sneak into the picture at that time nice. you know, as well. Yeah. And of course, you know, there was very little that any of us could learn about any of this at the time. So each new development uh, you know, a macrobiotic diet. It was just a wild new idea that people would try. So I was very fortunate to be around open-minded people who were thinking about alternative possibilities for everything in their life, psychology, spirituality, uh, everything. Did you end up having a lot of resistance from your family as you explored and found it improving your life? Yeah, tremendous resistance, although it wasn't necessarily very active because I think they thought I was so far off the deep end that <laughs> it wouldn't do much to say very much. So how did you end up studying Ayurveda and the various others? You've studied, I know, traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, and I can't, I can't remember. Was there also traditional Western herbalism in there? Yeah, all of those. Uh, yeah. It's just that at that time, there was no way to do a course from beginning to end that was structured academically the way we think of them now. So now we have all kinds of schools of natural medicine and textbooks and everything, none of that at that time. So I was lucky to bump into some early mentors uh, who a lot of them were naturopathic physicians or chiropractors, today we might call a holistic chiropractor, who graduated mm -hmm. from their medical schools maybe in the 1930s, something like that. So they were a generation older than me. And I had some friends who were interested in these ideas, and we would bump into these people and ask if we could study with them. And these people, many of whom were in their 70s and 80s at the time, were just overjoyed that teenagers and college-age people would be interested in 
what they were doing. And so they were very generous. And I ended nice. up studying with probably a dozen of those sorts of people. As we would meet one, they would introduce us to a friend and then another and another. So we would get together in different cities as we were traveling around. And of course, this is the days of extensive hitchhiking. So you, could, <laughs> you wanted to go to some place and study with you know some natural medicine expert, you just hitchhike there. So we would gather in these various places to study with these people who were just giants of natural medicine and had practiced it from when it was actually real and functioning in uh, North America. So they all had different perspectives. And I was able to study uh, Western natural medicine, including herbalism and nutrition and supplements and uh, Ayurveda and yoga and uh, Chinese medicine from these uh, various people. And then that just continued because at that point, I was deeply involved in all these things and anybody who I could study with, I would. So at conferences or reading books and reading papers. And we all sort of were doing the same thing because, again, there was this tiny sliver of information uh, available to us. A lot of those mentors uh, did not live very long after we started studying with them. So they were very old. We were very young. And we began to realize over time that there was something bigger than just the approach of a particular doctor, that there was there were these traditional systems that actually were alive and functioning and had been for thousands of years and that there were actually textbooks and information beyond what any given individual naturopathic physician or chiropractor or herbalist had to share and we began to dig those up and then it was a group effort of educating each other so as i would go pass through the town of some colleague we get together and you show me mine i'll show you yours <laughs> and or the other way around and then we would uh share that with somebody else. And it was very much a grassroots effort that began to grow, but people were very, very serious about it by that time. So we wanted to know the things that actually worked and we traded uh, techniques, but still without any infrastructure, it was very piecemeal and very chaotic. After we discovered uh, European herbalism, for example, or books on Chinese medicine, it all began to coalesce and then we could uh, share with each other what we learned from a more uh, organized way. That sounds like that was, I mean, it was really cutting edge. It is. So I know that you helped found the American Herbalist Guilds. You were part of the, the very beginning core crew of people that put that together. Was that in the same time frame, or was that after you had moved through a lot of this? Yeah, let me clarify that just a little bit. Uh, right. The American Herbalist Guild was founded by a group of people uh, invited by one founder. He just sent out a letter to every herbalist that he knew. They got together at a resort and talked about how can we help each other and let's form a professional association. I wasn't involved in that, but I came in quite soon after that. So I began attending conferences and, and such, and then eventually I became an officer in that organization and yeah. served in that capacity for 20 years, eventually to become the president. So I'm the immediate past president of that uh, organization. So yeah, historically speaking, I was, I came to it very early, but I'm not on the list of founders. I'm okay. on the list of second wave people. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah. Cause I, I, I don't know a lot about the history of it. I mean, I, I've, I've read the stories briefly and then I forget the details cause that's the way my mind works. <laughs> and for whatever reason, I keep connecting you with that very early group. But the second wave that, you know, after they got it founded is still quite early in that organization. And 
they I know they are one of the forces in America that had that moved connected herbalists in a powerful way. Oh, very much so. Now, I was 20 years into my career by the time the American Herbalist Guild even started. I think we're at about uh, 30 years now since the founding of the American yeah. uh, Herbalist Guild, something somewhere in that neighborhood. So uh, it was a great benefit to all of us because we were able then to connect in an organized way and meet at yearly conferences and write articles for the journal and, you know, all those sorts of things. And so uh, knowledge was accelerating drastically in all these various uh, fields. You know, the naturopathic school in Seattle was founded. People began attending the naturopathic school in Portland. And all of these were cross-fertilizations. And so from that tiny seed in the hippie era, uh, it began to grow slowly. But as it began to expand, it was expanding more and more rapidly. And did you have your school at the time that the – so you have a 20 – I'm looking at this like 20-year of career that you had was your school established during that 20 years or did you establish your school after becoming initially involved in the american herbalist guild no my school actually existed before my involvement with the american herbalist guild you know these things were uh called schools at the time but you know there was relatively little that we could offer so my school goes back gosh about 45 years um, I began to teach very, very early in the process, and uh, there was no formal ribbon cutting of what my school was to be and what the name was and everything. It was just me teaching, and then I would co-teach with some other people, and then gradually it became more and more formal, and we began to offer uh, more and more things. So I was, when I was still a, a teenager, I began practicing, and I was uh, going to college, and I talked to a health food store that was right next to the campus. And they offered me the opportunity to do consultations in their back room. It was to their interest because then people would come out into the front and buy the remedies that I might have suggested. So yeah. I was still a teenager, uh, <laughs> very minimally trained, of course, by that point. But I knew more than most people around about that. And so I was able to do that. So I would solicit clients uh, at school. So my fellow classmates and people that I would run into and these were topics that, of course, everybody was talking about at the time anyway. Oh, have you heard of, you know, this or that treatment, this or that herb, whatever. And then the health food store, you know, would, would have it and I would recommend it to people. So from that point, my career as a practitioner uh, evolved. And then gradually, I eventually had my own uh, clinic and uh, along with the clinics was teaching right from the very beginning. So even in that environment where I was still a teenager and was practicing, I started teaching on weekends. Uh, very easy to do at that point. People were really hungry for any kind of information. So if I knew a little bit more than the people coming to classes, <laughs> I could pack a room on a Saturday and talk to people about these sorts of things. And as Patrick was mentioning, this was all happening in the Northwest, which was very much a hotbed of this sort of thing at the time. So yeah. easy to gather people for those sorts of classes. Were you aware that your website needs to be ADA compliant? If not, you could face a lawsuit or a fine. Legal action against websites without ADA compliance has seen an exponential increase since 2017, and it's only going up year to year. Mudpod Design has a bulletproof system to make your website ADA compliant. Get a free audit at mudpoddesign.com free ADA audit today to find out how your website become ADA compliant within just 48 hours. Yeah, it. I mean, it's 
even now people gather for them, but not people know so much more than they did then, I suppose. <laughs> well, the availab availability of information is, is, yeah. is what, ten, twenty fold from from your experience when you were just starting out. I mean, you just you know, the search engines alone at your fingertips, you know. Yeah, the greatest benefit for me, that's for sure. I just love the information that we have now. It's like drinking from a fire hose, though. You know, right. I was talking yeah. to one of, one of my colleagues the other day who's one of the most well-known and well-spoken uh, professional herbalists with a career uh, as long as mine. And she said uh, that she goes to a conference and listens to one of our colleagues talk and thinks that she should go back and, uh, you know, start working in a grocery store because she's not worthy. But, of course, people <laughs> would say the same thing about her. Right. So. It, it's become very sophisticated by uh, comparison, and I have access to all those things. You know, a, a, a health food magazine article that would take me an entire day at the library to write, I can write in half an hour now with the Internet. Right. The, the flip side of that is that uh, there's a whole lot of nonsense uh, on the Internet and uh, probably a lot more nonsense than sane, stable information. And so everybody has access to that, too, and the general public or even beginning students in natural medicine can't separate the nonsense from the sense. And I get asked the same nonsensical questions over and over and over that people read in a hundred blogs. They never did make any sense. But someone said something got picked up by somebody else and then the blogosphere replicated it. And from a student's perspective, if they read it in a hundred blogs, it must be true. Right. It wasn't true to begin with. It's a difficult conversation to have. Yeah, that is the that is the downside of of, of all of this pro, prolific amount of information and who's doing it, who's vetting it, and how it's getting out. Um, so yeah, you're right. That is the downside of it. I mean, is that what you would say? You know, looking from your career standpoint now, what's your biggest challenges that you see in the herbal industry, the herbal education industry, if you will, in the next few years, based on where we've where we've come to this point. Well, that's certainly a big challenge, but I, I would say that even more of an issue is people understanding the role that natural medicine can play in their lives and how it compares to uh, conventional medicine or living sort of the standard American uh, lifestyle. Uh, when I first started, people took these things very seriously. And as I was saying, you know, we'd hitchhike for two days to get somewhere to study with one of these old time naturopathic physicians to get one nugget of information. The fact that the information is so easily available now, people can't figure out how seriously they want to take it. Yeah. And they have cognitive dissonance about the fact that uh, it's super potent and may be very beneficial and yet might be uh, dangerous. And yeah. both are sort of simultaneously true, but they have difficulty figuring out what level of natural medicine is appropriate for them and where the problems might lie. So they can't tell the difference between, you know, peppermint and belladonna. They're right. all herbs. And, you know, we have no tradition of grandma uh, medicine in our culture. And so people think of these things as all um, safe or all uh, dangerous. And the, the reality is they're somewhere in the middle. Yeah. So people have a difficulty figuring out how seriously to take it. This has definitely become even more of an issue in the last, I would even say maybe two years. I just had an avalanche of interest from aging baby boomers 
who were around these concepts their entire life. You know, their college roommate was taking herbs, something like that. But they never really got very involved. But they have a generally positive impression. So now they're 70. They live the (laughs) conventional lifestyle all their life. And now they expect the magic herb that's going to cure their uh, angina and their arthritis. And, you know, they're 50 years too late. Now that we could not that we couldn't help them to some extent, but they have unrealistic expectations about what we can do for them. Uh, and they uh, expect the kinds of things that we do to work like the drugs they've always been taking. They're no longer taking the drug or it, the side effects are more severe than the problem. So they're looking for an alternative, but they don't understand all the lifestyle and environment that goes along with that. Right. You know, herbalism is something that we often, you know, we talk about and we talk about on the show and I, other herbalists that I speak to, we talk about the plants a lot. And oftentimes people who aren't already indoctrinated into herbs and herbalism don't really get that we may be talking about, you know, doing a these herbs in the spring or these herbs for flu and cold season or whatever. But it isn't just the herbs. It's also, you know, sleep and exercise and diet. And there's so many other pieces that are really a part of herbalism, even though in modern day herbalism in America, we have this idea that it's just a category for, you know, plant health only. Yeah, well, that you're exactly right. And that has actually uh, held us back because when we first began these uh, explorations uh, 50 years ago or so and began to rejuvenate natural medicine in North America, uh, our culture took that as a, 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 an indication to make product. And so for 50 mm-hmm. years, we've had a lot of herbs, but not much herbalism. So yeah. it's been driven by the desire to sell things. The health food store, as idealistic as the founder might be, that one way or another, they have to sell product to stay in business. Right. So I would say that um, the average person that, that's taking supplements of any kind, herbs, vitamins, whatever, probably two-thirds of them are uh, improperly selected. Uh, it's not right for their body in some way. It's not a quality product. The dose isn't sufficient. Uh, you know, a long list of reasons why it's not a good match for them. Uh, but they don't understand that difference. And either they read about it, their aunt told them it would be good. They heard about it in a talk. They read about it in a blog. And it's just chaos. So people are, I, I, when I go into the health food store, I try to just put blinders on and go directly to what I want to buy and get out of there. <laughs> but I usually get uh, intercepted by some well-meaning advisor. And then, of course, they have no idea who I am. So they talk to me about whatever the thing yeah. is. And it 90% of the time, it's completely off base. Yeah. yeah unfortunately, scary. Yeah. And marketing, marketing and sales has gotten more and more sophisticated in how it talks about or languages what it's trying to sell, making it sound more and more like whatever the thing is it's selling is going to be good and safe and perfect for everybody. It really isn't. I mean, it just really isn't. And that's, we as a culture have bought into the marketing speak, not just in health, but in everything. Yeah, we had about three generations in North America where natural medicine had been obliterated And nobody had uh, experiences like they do everywhere else in the world where a grandma gave them herbs. They saw their aunties and everybody in the village taking herbs and using them. I was talking to a person from Switzerland the other day who said, uh, everybody in my village takes herbs. We always have. We know how to use them. They work great. 
what's with you Americans? You're not taking herbs every day. What's wrong with you? Yeah. <laughs> the fact is that we've given all of our control and health over to men and men and women in white coats. Um, this happens, yeah. it happened in my family. They, they, everyone believes that everybody in the clinic is, well, let, lack of a better term, God when it comes to um, medical knowledge. And they don't question it at all. They just take it at, that they know that's the way to go, nothing else. Yeah. And that's the majority perspective for sure. Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, to be fair, I don't think that our modern medical doctors and nurses and other staff have been very well trained in nutrition, diet, you know, natural healing modalities or techniques. So you go in and they say, what are you taking? And you list off your supplements and you say, you know, and they tell you, well, you can't be taking any herbs. That's not okay with this medicine we want to give you. And then you're left saying, well, what do you mean by that? I can't have basil or parsley anymore. What does this mean? I can't take herbs. And they can't really give you a straight answer because they don't really know what it means either. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and I don't blame any given individual because I think, generally speaking, people are kind-hearted and got into yes. those professions to help people uh, with some exceptions. But they just have no training. Uh, yeah. Their paradigm doesn't include those things, and there's no education about them. So you're right. They don't know the difference between basil and ashwagandha and why one would be better than another under some circumstances. Yeah. So the, the, the advice is very uh, choppy and people don't know how to interpret it. You know, when you're in a, a field, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. So right. medical doctors have been extensively trained in the use and cautions for medical uh, processes and procedures, mm -hmm. and uh, they don't know about the herbal medicines, so why risk it? You don't need it from their perspective, so don't push it. Yeah, one of the things I think I've been seeing over the past few years is um, as as – Mainstream America starts to really become more and more familiar with and comfortable with the idea of daily herbs and supplements and natural healing and, you know, Ayurveda or yoga is no longer a foreign word in every single household. We have a larger percentage of people that at least know what yoga means, at least in terms of, well, at least it's stretching, you know, <laughs> they've, they've got just the very rudimentary perhaps and, and more people are starting to explore that in a very mainstream way. And I think what's happening is that they're also beginning to seek more natural solutions for some of their problems, their medical issues, and that's helping to open the field. And as a result, medical doctors are no longer doctors, nurses, the, the, the industry, the industry is no longer having to try to be a one-size-fits-all, do-it-for-everybody system, and they can start to really focus on where they shine because they really do shine in certain areas. Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, if I have a car accident, I want to go directly to the emergency room and yes. use the best available technology without a doubt, and then I want to support that with natural healing sorts of things. So the places that yeah. we do well, especially are chronic degenerative diseases, uh, and there are certain areas where um, we have a special expertise uh, in acute kinds of situations. So we do very well with cold and flu, for example, whereas yeah. conventional medicine doesn't. So some areas in acute care uh, we're especially good at. And then generally speaking, long-term prevention and yeah. uh, reversing the 
trans asthma, something like that, things that we do especially well. So the idea would be to take the best from both. Yeah. The challenge, uh, of course, is that uh, medical doctors have different perspectives on how to relate to this. So with some, there's absolute resistance. You know, you're an idiot if you're using herbs. You don't need it. Don't get into that. Others sort of see on which side their bread is buttered and realize <laughs> that the direction is going this way. And so they want to become involved and they take a weekend workshop. You know, I actually was in a, a conference uh, a few years ago where uh, 200 medical doctors got together just through their own kind of personal network and came to a three-day weekend herb conference thinking that they would learn everything there was to learn about herbal medicine in those three, those three <laughs> days. And uh, so that, and then at the end of the conference, they, they assigned a representative to come to the conference organizers and say, we just want to apologize because we realize that you folks have as extensive training in your field as we do in ours. And obviously, we're not going to learn herbalism in, in three days. And now it's just, you know, the height of hubris. So our, you know, our apologies, but it really got us interested. And so we'll go back and continue to study. But who wants to go back, you know, after you're a medical doctor and you put in all those long years of education, who wants to go back and start from the beginning and do the same number of years, you know, doing something else. So right. we have these hybrids of people who have a lot of conventional knowledge and a little bit of alternative knowledge and are attempting to use those things in their practice, but can't really figure out where it all fits in and everything in between. So, you know, it's that period of chaos we're in now yeah. where we're trying to adjust to all this. And, you know, eventually it'll all work out one way or another. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think too, that with people that are under treatment, um, when I like, for instance, again, my, my family, uh, you'll see, I'll suggest things that maybe they should look into and, and the first thing that I hear from them is, well, I don't want to do anything that's going to interfere with, with what my doctor said. And I'm like, well, there's more information. There's, you know, have you asked him about these things? And, you know, I, specifically my dad, who has a chronic uh, illness and he will not do anything outside that paradigm. Just that's it. it. He doesn't, he's, you know, I'm like, dad, there's other things to do and he's like, won't do it. Nice. And I feel like, we're just sort of stuck in that. I don't want to interfere. And like you said, physicians don't know enough to say there's other ways to to do this. You know, we can't keep treating you with these painkillers, these these heavy doses of medicine. There's there's got to be some other ways because, like you said earlier, you know, the treatment is sometimes worse than the than the if you will cure. And, and no one wants to live in those in those situations. Um, it's just always hard to get people to think about there's another way. There's another way. <laughs> Yeah. Well, medicine, is, as it's become increasingly formalized over the decades as well, medical doctors feel like they're in a box and they're yeah. being uh, overseen by their medical boards, by the insurance company, of you know, their insurance and the patient's insurance. And it's yeah. almost just become a, a, a ball of a snarled up ball of stuff. One of my uh, colleagues uh, recently, who's a neurologist, was saying that uh, medical practitioners practice to the 70% level. In other words, if they can get um, some sort of effective results in 70% of the patients, uh, that's enough. Right. And that's being accepted by their profession. He said, when he went to medical school, it was 100%. You were yeah. committed to pursuing every single case until you found a resolution or you kept looking and kept testing, kept experimenting. So people with chronic uh difficult to explain problems uh, are in that 30% and they end up going to, you know, 10 neurologists who get increasingly frustrated because they see from the record that they've been to 10. It's like the first yeah. nine couldn't help you. Why am I, why are you here? Yeah. And, uh, you know, nothing more that can be done. 
So that 30%, there is an expectation that as people uh, age, they're going to be miserable. And I can't tell you how many clients have told me that they were told, hey, you're 65. What do you expect? Yeah. Uh, you know, so it just, it's the whole culture. It's, it's, the, it's an issue for all of us to yeah. explore. And gradually those things may, uh, may change. And hopefully they will. Hopefully they will. I know that many of the doctors that are practicing today are not entirely satisfied with where their profession has gone. Um, but, you know, sometimes it feels a little bit like you're one tiny little drop in the ocean. And how do you change the tide? Yeah, right. Uh, I'm not sure where this is going to go. When I first started, these ideas were so compelling that I just thought, well, in a few years, the entire culture will be converted over to these ideas. And how naive that was. <laughs> but we but are. Still, some, some changes. I mean, I, you know, I was just jokingly talking about tofu, but now you can get uh, prepared tofu microwave dinners yeah. in the grocery store. Yeah. So, you know, things have changed to some extent. And, uh, you know, we're, we're moving ahead in jerks and spasms. Yes, we are. And we're seeing... Like you said, I mean, tofu, everybody kind of knows what that is now across America. No matter who you are and where you live, it's kind of an innocuous, normal word. And as you said, just, you know, a couple of decades ago, that was not a normal word. Yeah, I heard that word once and I was like, that does sound good at all. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So we can thank schools like yours for helping make much of this kind of education, especially on specific problems or specific areas that you want to focus on, really easy and accessible. You have a terrific program of webinars, group of webinars that people can buy, as it were. How do you, how do they get to that for you? Yeah. Uh, so my school, the International Integrative Educational Institute, been around for 45 years, as I said, in some form or another. Uh, we do not have a brick and mortar location. Uh, we're all online and have been for an extended period of time. So we have uh, three professional flagship uh, career courses, uh, herbalism, uh, Ayurveda and nutritional therapy, all of which are associated with their respective professional associations so that people get a credential uh, based on the criteria of that professional uh, association and then are are deemed to be uh, well trained enough to uh, to practice. Uh, so those are all online. And then we're uh, involved in many other online sorts of things. Uh, I typically teach a webinar uh, once a week on some natural healing topics. So we've got 300 of those that we've done over the past few years. And those are at the website. It's international integrative, integrative with a V-E, internationalintegrative.com. Uh, go there easily. But frankly, just Googling my name will get you right there. And then you can take a look at all those uh, recorded things. We also do some longer programs, 10-week um, programs like uh, Journey into Ayurveda or Journey into Chinese Medicine and numerous other ancillary sorts of things. So a bunch of recorded things there. And then uh, I teach for a few other schools as a guest teacher here and there in one topic or another. And information about that would be on the website as well. So a lot of opportunities for people to get educated in a broad variety of natural healing fields. Yes. And we will make sure that we have all of those links available. Um, one of the things that um, your assistant said you were going to offer our listeners was a free webinar 
think it was the herbs for first aid. Yeah, that's right. So uh, listeners can connect with you to get the link and then they can go there. And um, that's a, a free webinar on home use of herbal medicine for common everyday uh, kinds of problems, first aid issues, things that come up in your life, uh, tummy problems, constipation, uh, nosebleeds, headache, that sort of thing. A lot of info there. Yeah, thank you so much for that. I Personally, I've taken several of your webinars and I really love the way that you approach it. I love it's very practical. And I love the fact that it's cross modality, if you will. I mean, you don't just include the Ayurvedic approach only. You have a nice wide variety and it's all science. There's science too, which I appreciate. So thank you. One of the inter interesting things is I've taken those classes um, because I'm in the same room with with Candace, and I'll hear you speak. And, and one of the classes that I thought was was really interesting was the facial structure um, psychology. Yeah, psychology class, and just listening to you just go through and give examples, exa and they're like, "Wow, that's amazing!" And and now we can't even watch a movie now without like, <laughs> identifying a, the facial structure of a main character. Yeah. So thanks. <laughs> that's one of the most valuable things I've ever learned. I learned it. Uh, 40 years ago, maybe more from a renegade psychologist and uh, just found it instantly valuable. And that vocabulary is in my family as well. And so my wife and children, we talk about that all the time about people's personalities and how we can recognize it immediately from things in their, in their face, extremely valuable. Yeah. That's a, a whole series mm -hmm. of classes that's uh, available. It's already recorded and ready to go. One of the top five things probably, or maybe top three things that I've learned in my career. Well, my mission uh, over my entire career has to make, is to make these things digestible because so much of natural medicine has been so esoteric and people will say things that sort of sound like they make sense, but then how do you apply it? A lot of vocabulary, start studying herbal medicine. And from my perspective, uh, studying all the big three, Western Ayurvedic and Chinese medicine, you have three different languages. Yeah. Uh, you have botanical Latin. You have scientific, you know, kinds of information. And all those things dovetail, and it's kind of overwhelming mm -hmm. at first. But you stick your toe in the water and kind of let the waves wash over you, and slowly but surely you work your way into it. And then each one reinforces the other. So everyone is the flashlight to illuminate some aspect of a case, and very often some concept from Chinese medicine will crack the case for you. Other times it'll be some information from uh, science. So we all learn from each other. Yeah. I think that's where we're going. So to be locked into one ethnic system is too limiting for today's world, I think. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. All right. So at the end of our shows, what we typically do is we have a little catchphrase and, and we say, you know, we say, you know, put an herb on it. And so this year we've been asking our hosts if they'd like to say the catchphrase with us when we close out the show. Our guests. Are, you, are you game? Uh, yeah, what, what's the catchphrase? Uh, put an herb on it. Ah, that's great. <laughs> so, okay, let me know. So, you got it? You ready? All right, everybody. So, as always, put, put an, an herb, herb on, on it. it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you so much. The statements made about herbs and products on this podcast have not been evaluated by the United States Food and Drug Administration, FDA, and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. All information provided on this podcast or any affiliated websites is for informational purposes only 
and is not intended as a substitute for advice from your physician or other healthcare professional. You should not use the information on this podcast and its affiliated websites for a diagnosis or treatment of any health problem. Always consult with a healthcare professional before starting any new vitamins, supplements, diet, or exercise program before taking any medication, or if you have or suspect you might have a health problem. Any testimonials, questions, or case studies are based on individual results and do not constitute a guarantee that you will achieve the same results.